0: from that into the sermon, huh? We saw that commercial, and I thought, okay, it fits right in with our Angry Birds sermon series. So let me pray. Lord, as we open your word this morning, we come to you as a people who are really in desperate need of the truth, of the life-giving truth that comes through your son, Jesus Christ, and words that are contained in the Holy Scriptures. Father, I desire that, that you be glorified, And so, Spirit, would you empower me to preach the Word of God this morning? Help me to shine this spotlight on Jesus. And may your church ultimately be built up, as I always pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could put that up. Which button do I press over here to turn this on, Dave? No, I can do it, but just which button is it? uh, The power button. Thank you, Lydia. Lydia, come up here, and, and, and since you have your eyes, come press the power button since you did that. And so, um, okay, find the power button there. I wanted to begin by our, continuing our Angry Bird series. Here is the verse. Oh, Lydia doesn't know where the power button is. I want this on video. My daughter said to touch a power button. She doesn't know where the power button is. This is live on YouTube, and Lydia Stuffman does not know where the power button is. There we go. Thanks, Dave. Okay, I just looked to this rather than turn around. Anyways, here's a verse I want to just begin with, and you can just read this. You don't need to go there. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. We've been talking about angry birds and how to deal with conflict and offense. And the, the prevalence that it uh, is given within Scripture, I want to begin with a, a story, um, true story. Uh, when I was working with with Campus Crusade for Christ, um, we had a very close staff team in the mid nineties. Um, we just all got along. Um, you know, you have people from very theological backgrounds and personality types, and so on. But this, they very, very close. Um, staff team. Um, There was a a couple that was serving at uh, another campus and um, it just wasn't a good fit for them there. And so they came to uh, Bowling Green State University and joined our team. And unfortunately from the very beginning you could tell that it wasn't going to be a good fit either. Um, This young man had come to serve under our current campus director within a few years to then become his own campus director at his own university. And um, he was a, a very good, close friend of a, our current campus director. And I remember sitting uh, at one of the, the few meetings that we had as a staff team when the leadership position was given to this young man. And he was changing a few things on our agenda or, or within our framework and our teaching system that he just did on his own. They felt like he could do that, and. The whole team was like, no, 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 you can't do that. And so whatever sense of fellowship and unity we had was immediately destroyed from that moment on, it turns out. Um, as the, the, the year went on, actually the summer occurred and then, then the year went on, it became obvious that the tension that was existing between the staff team and this couple, it just it wasn't working out. There was tension, there was some, you know, maybe a little bit of hostility, there was definitely some conflict. So, at that time, one of the popular books that was, been written was by Larry Crabb called Connecting. Anyone you ever heard of that book before? It's how to deal with kind of conflict and healings in your past and so on and so forth. And in an attempt to just not deal with the elephant in the room, we were reading this book as a staff team and going to deal with some of these issues, And so one of the chapters in the book, I believe, talked about just kind of airing things out. And so we had this uh, staff meeting where we were going to just kind of discuss some of these issues. Because it wasn't doing any good to not deal with it. And I think I've told part of this story to you before. But when the time came um, for this portion of our our meeting, I let it off and just said to this, this young man that I feel like I have to have a reason for everything I do in ministry, and just being honest, it turns out that that was a sentiment of most of the staff team, but he immediately fired back and said that I sacrifice faith, or sacrifice reason for faith, and as the discussion went on, it got tense, the, the campus director's wife just got up and left, and unfortunately, what came about was, and it was even unfortunate in the way that the seating was set up, there was this couple, and then here was kind of everybody else, and it was pretty much everybody else. In this couple. And that's not a good thing. But we wanted to deal with the conflict and get the elephant out of the room and so on. You know what what we're doing here. Well, what happened was the very next staff meeting the following week, all the staff team except this couple was stunned when we showed up to this meeting. And there was this couple and they had a student with them And it was one of the students that I was working with, I was discipling. And we wondered why the student was there, and he was there to join their side on this conflict. So in other words, this couple had gone outside of the staff team and involved a student. That didn't sit well with the rest of the staff team, and we couldn't understand why the campus director even allowed that to happen. So there was a further deterioration in the relationship. We go on, and I remember at this same couple's house, months later, maybe even, maybe even the following year, my memory's a little hazy, there was another issue that came up, and this man brought another staff member. She was a female, and she was a wife, by arguing brought her to tears in front of everybody in the staff team. And he would not repent or would not apologize for it. And so things were getting bad. And I remember sitting there watching the whole thing happen, just sitting there looking at the director and sitting there thinking, are you going to deal with this? I can't believe this. I was looking at the husband thinking, what in the world is he going through right now? I mean, it was bad. Things were getting escalated. And I saw this brother who would not back down. Was pressing his rights. I don't even remember what the issue was, but it wasn't good. Well, something needed to be done, and I remember that the summer came along, and that summer I was in Indianapolis taking some classes. That was the year that we adopted our son Jacob, and that couple was there taking classes, and we were sitting under the teaching of uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem, and I noticed that this couple was sitting with Dr. Grudem talking to him a lot, and overheard that they were talking about what was going on on our campus. And Dr. Gruden was hearing one side of the story, and it was no long, wasn't that long before he was totally bought into what their side of the story was. He even made a comment to the entire class that this young man was a, had a lion personality. That's how God made him, and he should just be a lion. And I'm sitting there thinking, you have no idea, Dr. Gruden, what you're saying. Because sometimes a lion needs to be tamed. You don't let a bull loose in a china shop, do you? No. Well, we went into, there's gonna be another year that this couple was there and the staff team and the area staff team had got involved and put some restrictions on this this young man because the damage he was causing through his offending people. Well, he eventually broke those rules and he did it at a a retreat that I was overseeing with the entire staff team and students. And he happened to do it in front of the, the campus director's wife I don't remember the issue, but he just got walked away and caused a problem. He violated his agreement, and they had to remove him, which was the right thing to do. Now, not long after that, I had left Campus Crusade, joined the staff of the church. He left as well. But a year later, um, I was on campus following, uh, doing some some work on some evangelism, and I ran into another staff member uh, within Campus Crusade, we hadn't seen each other in about a year. I'd worked with him personally. And he gave me an update on this young man. And instead of totally removing him from ministry, they did what they normally would do, is they promoted him. Made him a, a director of a, of a, of a campus in, in Ohio. And he looked at me, this young staff member, and he said, and of course you know what happened. The same problems here at Bowling Green are following him there. Now, maybe you've known something or been in a situation. And by the way, this young man has gone on. He's left uh, campus ministry, joined the staff for church, has now planted a church, and it's a thriving, growing church. But I didn't know, and I'm assuming he didn't know, the seriousness of causing an offense. Now, maybe you know of people that are just offensive, and they go around in like a hurricane. After a hurricane goes through, goes through, What is left? called awake. It's destruction. Okay, That's what offended people do. They hurt people and they leave in their wake destruction. I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 17 verses 24 through 27. And if you need a light on up here, I don't know if there's anything we can do, but um, Matthew 17, 24 through 27. Is that better? A little bit? We all have our blind spots, but it's not a blind spot if you're offending people, okay? And it's a serious charge in Scripture, woe to that man by whom the offense comes. I think you understand that, the reason behind that in the last two sermons. Now, Matthew 17, starting in verse 24, when they come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, yes. And when he come into the house, Jesus anoint, anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you've opened its mouth, You will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Oh, if God would pay my taxes that way, I would be so grateful every year. Well, this is in the context of the last six months of Jesus' life. He and his disciples, they just returned to Capernaum, had a long ministry tour, and they probably needed some rest. Now, did you know that Peter... The Apostle Peter was from Capernaum. So they're probably staying at his house. And while Peter is out, obviously he's approached by these tax collectors. Now these are not Jewish tax collectors that work for Rome. Like Matthew was a tax collector, a publican. That's not I'm referring to here. These are people within the Jewish religious system collecting the temple tax for the services of the temple required by the law of Moses in Exodus 30. And every Jewish male... Paid this annual tax that amounted to two days' wages. Okay? Now keep this one thing in mind. In this current time in history, there is not a democracy here, it's a monarchy. And the countries are run by an individual. In this case, it would have been a a king or an emperor or a Caesar. And he taxed everyone under his rule for two reasons to support his kingdom and to support his family. But no matter if it was, he was a Roman tax or a Jewish tax, nobody likes paying taxes, right? But Jesus is about to teach Peter and us an important principle, and it begins with a question. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? And the answer to this question is obvious. From strangers. A king is not going to tax his own son or his own daughter. Now here's Jesus' point. The sons are then free. Free from tax, from paying tax. The sons are not the ones who pay taxes. They're the ones who enjoy the benefits of the tax. The sons live for free and are freely provided for. But this official received the temple tax. Okay? Okay? And that begs this question: Who was king and owner of the temple? What's the answer? Who owned the temple? God the Father, right? He was the owner of the temple. And if you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to know that Peter had just received in an earlier chapter, chapter 16 of Matthew. The revelation from God that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. So what Jesus is asking Peter is really this. If I am the son of the one who owns the temple, then am I not free from paying temple tax, correct? Follow me so far? And the answer is, of course, yes. He would be exempt from paying the tax. But what does Jesus do? even though he has proven he was free from paying tax, in order not to what? Offend. He paid the tax. And so here's the point in this introduction. Jesus did not use his freedom to offend. We too are sons and daughters of a king, right? What's our king's name? Jesus What does he own? Everything. So therefore, in regards to taxes, we should be free and exempt from paying taxes, right? But we pay taxes because that's what he requires. That's what God's law says. But even though we are free, we are bound by a greater law, the law of God. And the law of God, as we're going to find out, says, do not offend. Do not offend. Offend. So let's briefly talk about the freedom of the believer before we get into Romans 14. When you come to Christ, for example, before Jesus even died on the cross, God's people, the Israelites, the Jews, they lived under a complex system of, of laws, and those laws served as a moral compass and a guide in their life. But through his sacrificial death, Jesus Christ fulfilled the requirements of the law. Amen? That set believers free from the law of sin and death. So Christian freedom involves living not under the burdensome, external, and ceremonial obligations of the law. For example, believers are no longer required to follow the laws outlined in the Old Testament, such as what? You have to observe a Sabbath. Sabbath. No. Do you have certain food restrictions? No. Do you have to attend required feasts? Do you require animal sacrifices? No, you don't do any of that. But you follow the moral law written in the Old Testament, i.e. the Ten Commandments, but that's under God's grace. So Christians are free to follow and serve Christ in ways that love and glorify him. And that, in a nutshell, is Christian freedom. But Christian freedom is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. And here it is. True freedom means you willingly become a slave. True freedom means you willingly become a slave. Look at this right here. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, that was you before you became a Christian, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having then been sent free from sin, that's when you receive Christ, you become what? A slave. A slave of righteousness, a slave to Jesus Christ. Do Christians believe in slavery? Yes. But not how the world understands slavery. We are a slave to Jesus Christ. Now, that, the freedom that comes with being a slave, and it would, be, do, it would be of great benefit for you to understand, becoming a Christian means becoming a slave. But the freedom that comes with being a slave means I use my Christian freedom to do what? To serve others in love. You see that? I've been called to freedom, but I don't use my freedom in a way to serve my flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the, 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 the foundation of what we're going to talk about the rest of our time. Any questions? Okay. Now, let's talk about the limits of Christian freedom. Get your Bibles out and turn to Romans 14. We're going to go through this chapter and then that'll be the end of the sermon. Romans chapter 14. We'll kind of take it a couple of verses at a time and, and briefly explain it to you. As you're turning there you can just listen. The first 11 chapters of Romans lay out the doctrines of the Christian faith. Kind of summed up with the main doctrine of justification by faith. You are justified in God's eyes by your faith in Jesus Christ, not by anything you do. And starting in chapter 12 through the rest of Romans, you're going to find commandments or the ethics of the Christian faith. All of these commandments found in the book of Romans can be summarized by one word. From chapter 12 on, it's just the word purity. God's church is to be pure, it's to be holy, it's separate from the world, separate from sin. But here's the thing, sin isn't the only problem that the church must face. There's within the church another potentially sinful problem that the church has to deal with and wrestle with. And if it's not dealt with, and I've seen it happen, it can cripple a church. And it's a relationship between strong and weak Christians and the potential conflict that accompanies it. So, if you look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 14, verse 1, and we go all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, the Apostle Paul is dealing with this whole matter of unity among strong and weak believers. Now, to explain this in the simplest terms, by definition, a strong believer is one who understands Christian freedom. That's it. A strong believer is one who understands Christian freedom. A weak believer is one who does not understand Christian freedom. The temptation to sin comes, now watch this, when the strong believer despises the weak believer, and the weak believer condemns the strong believer. You with me so far? Now in the church in Rome, you had Jews And they were saved out of the legalistic Judaism that was accustomed to traditions. They would faithfully observe dietary laws, holy days, feasts, and festivals. Now they were set free from these traditions when they believed in Christ. But some still felt bound in their conscience to observe these ceremonies and rituals. In the church in Rome, you also had Gentiles. And they were saved out of paganism. And they were accustomed to idol worship and the eating of meat sacrificed to idols and to these just debauched orgies. And they were set free from these pagan practices but when they believed in Christ, or when they believed in Christ, but they were bothered in their conscience to anything resembling these pagan rituals. So there was this perfect recipe for conflict you have the legalistic believer who sees freedom as sinful, and you have the free believer that sees legalism as sinful. In Romans 14, Paul gives us some principles to guide us through these tricky situations. Start with verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So the one who's weak in faith is weak in the sense of what it takes to believe he's really free to enjoy any kind of food, and he's free to enjoy any kind of day. But guess what? He's too weak to believe that. You ever know anybody like that? It doesn't have to be food or days. It could be dancing or smoking or drinking. They're free, but they're too weak to believe that. And so Paul says to the strong believer, what? What? Accept them. See that? Not for the sake of arguing or passing judgment on the weak believer, but for the sake of unity and love within the fellowship. In other words, take him fully into your fellowship. Because this is primarily addressed to the strong believer, this section here. Verse 2. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Again, the context here will help. You had Gentiles. Gentiles that didn't want to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And you would go in the marketplace, and the cheapest meat was the meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And they didn't want to eat that meat. So guess what they did? They became vegetarians. Jews wanted to be kosher. And they didn't want to eat in the marketplace. They didn't know if the meat was, was pure. It could be pork, which they're not allowed to eat. So they became vegetarians. Okay? So the person who is a strong believer, he eats all things, okay? The person who eats only vegetables is the weak believer. And the weak believer only eats vegetables out of fear that if they eat meat, they could have been sacrificed to idols, or they could be eating meat that was unclean by Jewish standards. So you have this weak Jewish or Gentile believer, and they're hung up on this issue of food. And you have some within the church that they're free to enjoy their liberty. They can eat whatever they want. And some are bound by their conscience and they cannot eat it. And we go to verse 3. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. And this is where the temptation to sin enters the picture. Paul's command is for the strong believer not to look down on. The weaker believer. And the weaker believer is not to condemn the stronger believer. Well, why? Because God has accepted them. You see that? He's accepted both. Who are you then to not accept them if God accepts them? You ever think that way when you're in conflict? So when the temptation to despise or judge another believer comes, remember this. God has already received this brother or sister fully into his fellowship. Verse 4. Who are you to judge a servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Again, the strong tend to despise the weak. The weak tend to condemn the strong. And here's how this typically plays out. As a strong believer, you tend to look at the weak, legalistic person who can't enjoy their freedom in Christ and think they may end up falling away from the faith as they despair of the Christian life with all of its rigid rules. You ever think that way about somebody? A weaker believer? Well, the weak look at the strong and say, they don't have any rules. They're pushing the limits of their freedom. They're so far away from God's plan They're going to fall away from the faith. And to all of that, Paul says, Who are you to judge another man's servant? In other words, think of it this way mind your own business. (laughs) Mind your own business. He will be judged by his master because judgment by an outsider is completely irrelevant. Now, who is the master of a strong or weak believer? god right the lord and it is only the lord's evaluation that matters if the believer will succeed or fail now look at the text the servant whether you're strong or weak and whoever's judging or despising they're going to succeed they're going to make it in a christian life why god will make him stand the lord will sustain him Nobody is going to be saved and then lose their salvation because of being a strong or weak believer. You got that? Okay. Verse five. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats the and he who eats not, for the Lord does not eat, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. Verse 7 For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And Paul's point is simple in all that, those verses there. That even though the strong exercises faith one way, and the weak believer exercises faith in another way, think of it this way. The strong feels free to smoke a cigarette. The weak does not. The strong feels free to drink alcohol. The weaker brother does not. The strong feels free to dance. The weaker does not. They do it to please the Lord. Because the Lord is sovereign over each. The key here is that each person must be fully, it says there, convinced in his own mind. Do whatever you think you ought to do. Why? Because the issues of dancing, smoking, drinking, or of eating food, or of observing holy days, it's a non-moral issue. It's really not addressed in scripture. To the Sabbath and food, they were dead issues at that time. They'd already been decided. But Paul's point is he doesn't want people to train themselves to violate their conscience. Because if you do that, you're going to end up with bigger problems. Because if your conscience tells you that you need to exercise your faith through traditions in order to please the Lord, then guess what? Do it. Do it. If your conscience tells you that you need to exercise your faith freely, in order to please the Lord, then do it. And let me give you an example that you might be able to relate to. Worship music, or style of worship in the church. You know that, right? The big dilemma a couple years ago. Do we worship God through traditional hymns or through contemporary worship songs? Is this a moral issue? Have churches divided over this issue? Yes. It's a matter of what? What? Opinion. 14.1, it's opinion. Now, if you feel hymns are more pleasing to God in worship, then guess what? Worship God through hymns. If you feel contemporary worship songs are more pleasing to God in worship, then worship Him through contemporary worship songs. That's what those verses mean. You got me so far? You guys need a break? Okay, verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. We accept others because the Lord accepts others. We accept others because God sustains them. God is sovereign over them. And finally, this last point is that the Lord alone is the judge of everybody. The weak and the strong. When we judge others, either by despising them or condemning them, we are playing the role of God. We must not forget that we will one day bow our knee before him to whom we will give an account Next verse, therefore, let us judge one another, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. See, now, this is where he's talking to the strong believer. Yes, both strong and weak believers must not judge each other. But this verse is addressed to a strong believer. He must restrain the use of his freedom in order to build up the weaker brother. The word, therefore, is to remind us that since the Lord accepts the strong and the weak, since the Lord is able to hold up the strong and the weak, and since the Lord is sovereign over the strong and the weak, and since only the Lord will be the final judge of the strong and the weak, Therefore, don't judge, and to the strong believer, be sure you don't offend the weaker believer. And there we go again. If you offend the weaker believer, what can happen to them? In the exercise of your freedom, if you offend another believer, what can happen to that offended believer? They fall into the trap of offense. And then if they stay in that trap, what happens? They're captive by Satan, and they do Satan's will. Verse 14, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything is to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. You can think of food as drinking or smoking or dancing or anything. It could even be, and it's happening right now, being vaccinated. Right? Now, it says this, I know I am convinced by the Lord Jesus. Paul wrote that. Do you know what he's saying there? He personally, in his devotions with the Lord, received a personal message about this that nothing is unclean in itself. In other words, food and all kinds of food, drink, including alcohol, cigarettes, dancing, television, music, etc. Nothing is unclean in and of itself. Everything that God has made is what? Good, right? But if your conscience tells you that something that is clean is unclean, then guess what? It's unclean to you. And the message to the strong believer is don't hurt or grieve a weaker believer. If the exercise of your freedom hurts a weaker believer, then you are not acting in love. And the goal of a strong believer is to conduct him or herself in love toward a weaker believer. Here's the point. It is love that limits Christian freedom particularly love for others. That's the point of this whole message, really. By exercising your Christian freedom in love, guess what? You will ensure that there will be no offense. But if the exercise of your freedom causes offense, it can actually destroy the weaker believer. You see that in the text? And what does destroy mean? What's well, it's a devastating spiritual setback. You could cause that person to leave the church by the exercise of your Christian freedom, the loss of their joy, the loss of their effectiveness in ministry. I mean, how could you treat in a loveless way one for whom Christ died in an act of supreme love? Weak believers in ignorance don't need to be shown a pattern of behavior that will cause them to violate their conscience and stumble. They need to be shown a pattern of behavior that will usher them into a fuller understanding of their Christian freedom. And that is the responsibility of the stronger believer. Because the word of God, for example, in this instance, plainly, plainly says all food is clean, right? Was that enough to get that believer to then eat all foods? Well, no. No. So they need more. What's left for God to use? If it's, not, if it's written word isn't good enough, what's he left to use? Us. Verse 16, Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. In other words, don't... Forfeit your witness. It is possible to abuse, to so abuse your freedom or your liberty among ourselves that we create such conflict between the weak and the strong that the world in general is turned off to Christianity because of what they see. Because in verse 18, you see the word men there, the very last word in the New American Standard, that refers to unbelievers. In other words, the world is watching us. So don't forfeit your witness by overdoing your freedom and offending your brother in the face of an unbeliever. The world does not need to see how free we are, folks. The world needs to see how loving we are. And the world will know we are disciples of Jesus Christ by what? Our love for one another. So our concern is not our freedom. Our concern, now watch this, is righteousness. Because that's what the kingdom is. It's righteousness or holy living. Our concern is peace with God and others. Our concern is the resulting joy that comes from righteousness and peace. That's what the kingdom is. It's not a matter of eating or drinking, it's a matter of what? Righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom is about. And that is what is acceptable to God. Verse nineteen, So when we pursue these things which make for peace in the building up of one another, in other words, chase down vigorously is what this really means, the things that make for peace. And what makes for peace? You need two things. First, you need to pursue humility. Now like humility produces peace because humility says, I don't care about my rights. I don't care about my rights. In fact, I'm more concerned about your rights. Second, you pursue love. Because love not only puts others first, but it also builds up. Love edifies. So give your attention to those things. Verse 20, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food, all things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Now, food, again, is symbolic of any discretionary thing that you might have a right to do. And I've, again, over and over again, the thing that you've grown up with is you don't drink, you don't dance, you don't smoke. Those are the discretionary things. In this instance, it's food in Romans. But the point is simple. When you cause a brother to be offended by the exercise of your freedom, what you're doing is pulling down the work of God. Do not use your freedom to offend. Now, the faith versus last two verses. The faith which you have have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he proves but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, do you have faith? Well, yes, both a stronger and a weak believer have faith. If you are a stronger believer, don't flaunt your liberty. Enjoy your freedom before who? God, whether it be food or drink or music or dancing or whatever. Because happy is the one that is not condemning himself in the thing which he permits. You're happy because, guess what, you're enjoying your freedom and you're not feeling self-condemned because you don't have a guilty conscience or because you've caused someone else to stumble. Now look at this. On the other hand, he who doubts, who's that referring to? The strong or weak believer. The weak believer, he who doubts. He's going to be condemned if he eats food because his conscience is telling him what? Not to. Not to. And his conscience is going to do what then if he eats the food? It's going to condemn him. So if you're a weak believer, you want to be happy, well, don't try and copy the behavior of a strong believer. Happiness for a strong believer is to set aside your freedom and enjoy it before the Lord. Happiness for a weak believer is this if you don't think you can eat, don't eat. Because what will happen is you'll go against your conscience. And to you it'll be sin, and your conscience will condemn you, and it will bring guilt, and that guilt will rob you of joy. Now, I'm gonna close with a story. A true story. This is me it's the summer nineteen ninety. Oh my goodness, thirty two years ago, or well, thirty one years ago. There I am right there. This is um, Ocean City, New Jersey. Summer Ocean City, New Jersey. Now, it's so funny how I look at this picture now. What I see is no air conditioning. That's what I see when I see that picture, okay? This is 95 college students and staff, 95 students and some of the staff, like this is a staff member right here. Okay, these are staff members, they're the kids, okay? 95 college students crammed into this house in the summer in New Jersey in 1990, okay? Now, you remember, it was such a busy summer. Uh, this gentleman right here, great guy, Jim Sylvester, but he was a little bit of a, a workaholic. And so he had a very tight schedule. So I was up at 6 in the morning, going to 10 at night, basically six days a week. And I was just exhausted. You add to the fact that in New Jersey in the summer, is there humidity? Yes. Is it hot there? Yes. Now, granted, we were about, I think, half a mile or so from the beach. And so that, that breeze helped a little bit. So, I am tired from that schedule. I am giving spiritually. Whenever you give spiritually, you, it's a, there's a, a, an additional drain on you. So, I'm tired in, in, in the complete sense emotionally, physically, mentally. I'm a situational extrovert, which means that I can be an introvert or extroverted, but I'm with people all the time, so I can't get alone. So, guess what? That's draining me. So, I am just tired completely, and I'm hot. No air conditioning. I would you know, go to sleep kind of sweating and wake up maybe okay or wake up a little wet in the night with sweat. It was hot. So, this is a story. When the staff members, they're all throughout here, left halfway through, the students were in charge for the last half of the summer. And we were assigned jobs. Now, I'd already, I mean, first of all, in this environment with the young believers, One thing is guaranteed to happen, legalism will slip in, usually unnoticed. I was victim of it because over here, back behind here was this little library and every morning at six in the morning I would be there having my devotional and the same people were having their devotionals. Majority weren't having devotionals but they were doing all the religious activity. I remember learning this lesson that Christianity is not about activity, it's about a relationship with God. And so I was already judging those who were doing all this religious activity, but it wasn't out of being fed by the Lord. They didn't know at the time, but that's what I was doing. So when the staff left and the students were put in charge, I wasn't on the, the main leadership team. And there were people that were on the leadership team that, guess what? They weren't spending time with the Lord. And so I kind of began to judge them. But that's not the issue. I'm bringing it up that there was this legalism and this judgment that was kind of going around. And when the staff left, not long after they left, the word came out that the way that the men were dressing was causing some of the women to stumble. Now, they'd been raised, as I'd been raised, that like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. In other words, women save the skin for the doctor dressed modestly, okay? The first half of the summer, it's hot, but they were dressing modestly, and the men were too, but occasionally you'd have your shirt off or it would be unbuttoned, okay? Nothing was said. Once the staff leave, all of a sudden, this became an issue. And myself and other men were tired, and we were what? Hot. And when we were told that we, this, that we needed to Button up and dress, you know. Do you think it went over well in that environment with the men? No, it did not go over well at all. Okay. Now, I didn't talk to any of the women. I'm assuming that there were some that generally, they were stumbling over their brothers. But I knew that there were some, or I thought that there were some, that it was just nothing but a show of legalism, a show of righteousness, self-righteousness. And so, myself and others didn't say anything, but within our hearts, we were judging, looking down on these women. Now, I was in charge of running the weekly meetings, and it turns out that that was a really big responsibility. It was probably the top responsibility, other than being one of the leaders uh, that I found out years ago. So it was a really big job I had. I'm you know, running the meeting and everything, and... Not long after this mandate to button up, I knew one of the ladies, and I won't point to her here, was one of the ringleaders behind all of this. She actually went to the same university I did at the time, and she was up leading worship. Now, I had noticed this before, but now I noticed she had on short shorts. Now, back in the 90s, there, she's, here were shorts. There were shorts that like, came up to about right here, right? And you could buy those shorts, and that's what they, the women were to wear. Try buying women a pair of shorts today. Erica and I talked about this for my daughter Lydia, and the shortest shorts they have kind of come to about right here. Well, she was wearing back you know, 30-some years ago shorts that were way up here. Why was she wearing short shorts? She was up front in a T-shirt and short shorts. Well, she was hot. Right, And she was wearing these short shorts. But to me, if you are going to say that men with shirts that are buttoned down are causing you, the women to stumble, then by golly, I'm going to make you live by that same rule. You got your pound of flesh, I'm going to get mine. And you know me well enough, my, my strong will. I went to the... the, the student director of the Summer Project, which happened to go to our same university as I did, a good friend of mine. And in a self-righteous tone, I said to him, you know, this person's up there leading worship, and look at those shorts. Those are really short. It's going to cause men to stumble. So I threw it right back in her face. Was I tempted to stumble because of this woman? Absolutely not. I didn't think she was attractive at all. But in my heart... By golly, if she was going to be make me hot, she was going to be hot too. Now, was I condemn? Was I despising my weaker sisters? Absolutely. Was I acting out of love when I turned the tables on that young lady? Absolutely not. Did I care? Absolutely not. I didn't know any better. But I was tired, I was hot, and I didn't want my freedom infringed upon. Now we're gonna be done for the day because I got I ended up writing two sermons this week because there's a whole other section on this. I have another story from this summer that I can share with you next week. But you get the point. We walk in love so and it's love that limits our freedom so as not to offend. And you all know, I have your own stories and have heard stories of churches that have broken up or there have been divisions or people leave churches because of some sort of offense. Someone's done something, whether intentionally or not. We don't want to be like that, the first story that young man. You want to love and act out of love. Because that ensures it will be no offense. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we close this time. We thank you for your your word to us. And as the application point says, teach us how to exercise our Christian freedom in love. Because that's what the world needs to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy your day. I know the rain is coming, but have fun and go work off your Thanksgiving uh, meal if you like it. And I will see you next Sunday. Amen.